All right. So uh, we are continuing uh, in our series, Big Questions, Biblical Answers. And so we are just taking questions asked by y'all and just looking at them through the lens of Scripture and say, how do we respond to these? So tonight's question we'll be looking at is, okay, how can you believe in God if you've never seen him? Because we very much live like in a materialistic world. We very much live in a world where we say seeing is believing. Like I'll believe it when I see it. And so some people apply that to God saying, okay, then how can I really believe in God if I've never seen him? And so to kind of start our conversation of this, um, I just want to look at one verse in a story that I thought would be great. I think it's fitting because I feel like a lot of us have the same concept and it's Doubting Thomas. And unfortunately, Doubting Thomas gets a really bad name because a lot of us are a lot more like Thomas and realize we deal with doubts. But um, it's fitting. It's right after we just got done with Easter. And so this is something right after Jesus has died. And Jesus just appeared to the other disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. And so we see this. They're trying to tell Thomas, hey, like, we just saw Jesus. Like, we just saw him in front of us. And here is Thomas's reaction. This is John 20, verse 25, where... uh, where Thomas says this. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he, meaning Thomas, said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And I think that's fitting, because like, again, Thomas like saw Jesus through all this, and then he said, Okay, I want to see physical evidence, physical proof, that Jesus is back, that God is who he says he is. And I think sometimes we feel that way too. Like, I hear all these truths, but like, I want to see physical evidence of God to help me believe. And so, so what I want us to look at tonight is we're going to look at several different truths, several different ways that we can see God through the world around us. So before we do that, let us pray, and then we will jump in. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we just come before you. Uh, as, as fallen, sinful human beings, just in, in desperate need of your grace. We desperately need your grace to be able to understand any of this, comprehend any of this, to live it out. Um, I, I humbly admit I am totally incapable of being able to properly communicate or teach any of this without just your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit guiding every word and, and every action and every step. So Lord, would you just... Just purify me and everyone in here of just any sort of pride we might have in our hearts uh, to help me not, to me not only properly communicate this, but help us receive this. To, to help us glorify Christ, conform more into His image. So Holy Spirit, would you open up our minds to be able to understand and comprehend these truths? Would you be able to open up our ears to be able to hear the truths from your word? Would you open up our eyes to see even more of our need for Christ in our everyday lives? Uh, would you open up our hearts and just be able to, for us to lay our hearts bare and just to, to teach us and, and then through your word, if there's sins that we need to confess, you'll convict us of that. But if there's truths that can also encourage us in this time, you'll help us with that as well. Ultimately, again, conforming us more into the image of Christ to help us become even more of the followers of Christ you've called us to be, even more of the family of God you've called us to be, and ultimately to make Christ's name known. And so it's in Jesus' powerful, holy, precious name we pray. Amen. So like I said, there is uh, several ways we want to see evidence of God in the world around us. So the first one is this. We can see evidence of God through creation. We can see evidence of God through creation around us. 
So one of the first things we see in Genesis 1, 1 through 20, or 1 through 2, from the very first four words of Scripture itself, we see this truth. It says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, before the earth was formless, the, the Spirit was hovering over it, and it said, in the beginning, God. That God was there at the beginning and created all of this we see around us. In fact, it even says in Psalm 19.1, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That even the heavens themselves, everything we see around us glorifies and honors God. Or in Psalm 139, 13 through 14, how it says, Yet that God knit us together in our mother's womb, that we are uniquely and wonderfully and fearfully made. That you are uniquely and wonderfully, incredibly made. Every last little detail was by God. Or even see in Hebrews 3, 4, where it says God is the builder of everything. And last we see in Romans 1.20 where it says, all these invisible attributes of God and his divine nature and everything else, he has revealed to us through creation so that way no one is without excuse. Meaning no one is without excuse of saying, how can there be a God? Or how can I believe there's a God around us? Or where's evidence of God? And he says, look around. Look around to the beautiful world around us. Think about this. The world is so finely tuned. That there has to be someone behind it. It can't be this detail-oriented. It can't be this perfect in alignment that it just so happened to have be by chance. Or another thing people talk about is how they say the universe is like it's ever-expanding. So they say like every single year, every single day, like the universe is expanding just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Which means if we do a reverse of that, that means at some point it had to have started at some point to explode outward and start ever-expanding. And then we see that in the Genesis account where it says, in the beginning God, where he says, hey, let there be light. And then boom, light came onto the scene. He said, let there be this and boom, the heavens and earth are separated and everything bursts onto the scene. Then we see this beautiful picture. In fact, one example I just want to see of how finely tuned the world is around us. You ever thought about the sun and how important the sun is? Like, I know we never recognize it until it's like super hot outside or we get sunburned or things like that. But like, have you ever thought about how important the sun is? Here, here is just a few crazy facts, okay? The sun is 330,000 times the mass of the earth. The sun produces the same amount of energy as 100 billion hydrogen bombs every second. It keeps all eight planets in our solar system in elliptical orbit because of how gigantic its mass is. And also it heats the Earth's surface just enough for the right temperature for water to be here, which a lot of people say water is like the catalyst for life. So imagine then all these things line up. So imagine if you take the sun away. Here's just a few things what happens if you take the sun away, if the sun would just up and disappear one day. All eight planets would go flying off into space, and their solar system would be in complete, utter chaos. Uh, since it takes about eight minutes for the light from the sun to get to Earth, we would have about eight minutes until, like, everything got, like, completely dark. Like, you think it gets dark in, like, fall or winter time? Like, everything? Just imagine the sun goes out and it never comes back. Also, with the mass of the sun and its effects on gravity, gravity travels at the speed of light as well. So within eight minutes, not only is it going to get real dark, but things are going to start floating and going flying off like crazy. Photosynthesis would up and stop and all small plants would die in just a few days. Think about this. The Earth's temperature would drop to 32 degrees after one week. So for those of you that really don't like cold weather, you would hate this. And then not only that, after, after the first year, anyone want to take a guess of how cold it'll get? 
Negative negative 100 degrees. What else? Negative 250. It would get to negative 150 degrees at the end of the first year, which means the oceans would grow colder, it would freeze, and the earth literally would become a giant ice ball. But think, the sun is placed at such a perfect timing, and the earth just happened to be at the perfect place in comparison to the sun and everything the sun provides, that everything is so finely tuned that all ultimately points to a creator who fine-tuned all of it. Because again, if, there is, if something happened within time, space, and matter, then we'd have to have someone move and cause all this who is outside of time, who is outside of space, and who is outside of matter. And ultimately, that would be God himself. So when we look at creation around us, we see through creation, that is one evidence that we can believe in God and see God. A second way we see this is through morality is through morality. So here's what it says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. In this Genesis account, God is creating everything. And he says, Then God said, Let us make man, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then in verse 27, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So we are made in the image of God. And that doesn't mean we are gods, but we have the imprint of God upon our lives, upon our souls. And so, in fact, that's what it points to how we were uniquely and wonderfully and remarkably made, as we saw in Psalm 139. So this means that there's aspects of God that are imprinted onto us, one of those being morality, knowing, knowing right and wrong. So even though, yes, that Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and had that knowledge, yes, sin came in and distorted a lot of that, but there's still, at the very beginning, there's still a little bit of that, okay, we can kind of tell right and wrong because we have the imprint of God on our hearts. That's why we talked about a couple weeks ago and we see the suffering around us and we say, this is wrong, like something is off. Or we see injustices happening in our society and we say, that's not right, like that's, that's not what should be happening. Or we see evil things in our, like throughout history and go, yeah, like that, that is evil. That is wrong. Well, what declares that that thing is bad or that thing is morally wrong? It would be a particular set of moral laws. And so we are drawing that morality from somewhere. It's not just coming out of nowhere. It's not just spawning out of the blue. The reason we are saying that is right and that is wrong because it ultimately comes from some standard of morals. So this would mean that there is some sort of objective moral law saying this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. And there's many people around the world, universally, they, would, they have different universal codes of like something's wrong. Like I think many people would agree if we look at the Ten Commandments, yeah, murder is wrong. We'd say murder is wrong and that's an evil thing. Well, why? Because ultimately we're getting it from an ultimate objective moral law which means there must be an objective moral law giver, one that gives this law that shows all these things. And of course, on top of that, that means this objective moral law, this person must be perfect. And of course, we look at God. God is perfect. I mean, here's just two verses to point this out. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Or in Psalm 18, 30, it says, this God, his way is perfect. So we see that there is this objective moral law. 
which is going to go in total contrast against a lie of this age that we deal with, which is called moral relativism. So basically what moral relativism is, you might have heard it in different phrases, like you'll say something, well, that's your truth. You got to speak your truth. Speak your truth to power, wherever the case is. Where it's like, yeah, that's your truth, but this is my truth. So it's saying morality is all subjective. It's up to the person themselves. But when we see from scriptures, no, there is there's one objective moral standard and moral truth that it's that it's not up for, let's say, debate. And you have people say, well, there's no absolute truths, only personal subjective truths. But the lie about that is when they say there is absolutely no, there's no absolute truths is that is making an absolute truth claim. They're claiming there's no absolute truth, but they're claiming that ultimately. So ultimately, it caves in on itself that that is not a true thing. There must be an absolute truth and an objective moral standard, and there is, and it ultimately comes from God. So even through morality, we see through this right and wrong, that inherent imprint of God on our hearts, that is another way we can see evidence of God in the world around us. The next way we see this is through the temptations of the world. Through the temptations of the world. Now this one might sound a little odd. So let me explain this a little further of what I mean by that. So like, for example, in Psalm 115, 4 through 8, it talks about how they're worshiping idols made by human hands. And so here, here's what it says in Psalm 115, 4 through 8. It says their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but they do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So this is talking about how we normally will trade in the truths of God for, let's say, truths of, or the lie of the creation around us. They will trade in worshiping God, the creator of everything, and instead will worship the creation itself. And so, in fact, it says in James 1, 14 through 15, when we give in to those temptations, it produces evil. It produces sin. And we allow that sin to fester and we entertain it more and more. Ultimately, it's going to produce death. And so what we see is that's what happens. We give in to a lot of these temptations of the world, but there's something underneath all of that we got to understand, that there is a desire ultimately underneath all these temptations that we have that is going to ultimately point back to God. In fact, another way that we see this in Jeremiah 2.17, God is giving the prophet Jeremiah like instructions. Here's what I want you to tell the people. And as he's going through this, he says one of the heartbreaking things, one of the heartbreaking things that the people have done. And so um, he's given these instructions, and this is what he says that we can still apply even to this very day. So in Jeremiah 2, uh, verse 13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So they're trading in the living water of God in for broken cisterns that can't hold any particular water. That they're trading in the beauty of God for what they think is the beauty of creation, which will never satisfy. Why? Because we see in Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says God has placed eternity in our hearts. God has placed eternity in our hearts. That's why we are constantly craving more and more and more. We want the next iPhone. 
We want the next Xbox or PlayStation. We want the next designer clothes. We want the next championship. We want more in a relationship with someone or place a lot more stock in a relationship with someone or place, let's say, a relationship with, with a boy or girl in such a high priority above everything else. We want more friends. We want more followers, likes, shares, retweets, comments, views on social media. We want more academic achievements. We want more athletic accomplishments. We want the perfect home, the perfect relationship. Or in other words, we just want community. Or we want to feel loved. Or we want to feel wanted. Or we want to feel accepted. And none of these are inherently bad. But many people place them as their number one priority in life. And they worship these things, whether they realize it or not. Just like they did in Psalm 115, and it makes them feel more empty, more wanting. This is because nothing in creation is meant to satisfy the deepest longing of our soul. Again, because God has placed eternity in our hearts. So think about this. If God has placed eternity in our hearts, then nothing temporal that is temporary will be able to satisfy the desire of our heart. If, if we are designed for the Creator Himself, then nothing in creation is going to satisfy that longing. Because here's the thing, if we try to place our stock in anything in creation, it will always run out, and it will never be enough. In fact, creation is meant to be scattered beams of God's glory to point us back to Him. So ultimately, underneath all of these desires for things, all these vices that people say they give into whether it be drugs or whether it be lust or whether it be just wanting more community or wanting more people around them or more friends or, or these attention or acceptance. When you really get at the root of all this, because ultimately all of these are fulfilled in God. They're ultimately pointing us to God who created us for Him, created us to have a relationship with Him, created us to worship Him. So of course when we try to worship anything of creation, it's not going to satisfy because we're placing the entire weight of our souls onto this creation. And we're going to lean more into it, more into it, hoping. And it's going to break under the weight of our souls because it wasn't meant to carry it. It's only God himself that was meant to carry it because he has placed eternity in our hearts. So example I would have for this is, is imagine that, let's say, you are stuck on a deserted island. You're stuck in the middle of the sea and you're just hot and you are just, you're so thirsty. And a lot of times people would say, oh, I'll just drink the water around me. Well, the water around you is going to be salt water. And so, yeah, it might satisfy you for like a split second. Like you might have just a little bit of that thirst quenched, but then why? Because of how salty the water is, you're going to feel more thirsty and you're going to want more water and you're going to feel even worse than you did beforehand. Saying, why did I do that? Like I wanted it. You got that split second of satisfaction, but then you're left feeling and wanting more and being more thirsty. The only thing will satisfy is obviously clean, cold water. And that is how many of us respond to these things. That's how many people treat the world around them, is that they're so, they're thirsting after God. That is the desire of their soul, but they're trying to find it in everything in creation that ultimately won't satisfy. That's meant to point them to God. It's only the living water that God provides, but they keep running to broken cisterns that won't hold water and that will never satisfy. So through the temptations of the world, we see how at the core of those, it points us to a God who satisfies all the desires of our heart. The next one we see is, uh, the next one we see is through archaeology. It's through archaeology. And so uh, there is two kind of really cool things uh, that we have seen in this. One of them is there was, there was uh, an excavation at a place uh, 
in Israel, and they're looking, they're or in Jerusalem, and there were, it was about 1957 to 1962, and as they're digging up things, they actually came across this. They came across what is the pool of Bethesda that we see in John 5, verses 1 through 8. Because it talks about how they had the five colonnades and the different designs of it. Well, when they dug this up, they actually saw this fits the exact bill, the exact description of what we see in John 5, 1 through 8. So that is just one way, just we see what we see claimed in the Bible, we see in real life. Another way we see this is uh, there was another exhibition. They discovered what was called a, an ossuary. So that is a Jewish burial box. And so what they discovered inside one of these is that it was a right male heel. And what they discovered inside of it, what looked like an iron nail driven into it. And so a lot of times that showed that there were some people that were buried after they were crucified. And so that would lead credence to when Jesus was crucified on the cross and buried in the tomb, that this would point to there were some Jewish people that were buried in tombs after. And so we would see that there is very much this plausibility that this could have happened to you. Of course, he bodily rose, but it shows that this was another possibility of that. So even just through archaeology, we can see evidence of God. The next one we see is, is through Jesus himself. Through Jesus Christ himself. I mean, this is what we see just in a few verses. In John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh. Like this word that, that we read, that it became flesh. God took on flesh, and it said He tabernacled among us. He dwelled among us. He lived among us. It said in Hebrews 1.3, it says, Jesus was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And lastly, it says in Colossians 1.15, it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So Jesus is God revealing himself to us by taking on flesh. So we're able to physically see God in front of us. Now, of course, nowadays, obviously, we are, we are 2,000 years removed from that, so we, might, so we might not be able to physically see Jesus today, but we can look at the testimonies of those who physically saw Jesus, and we can believe that. Like, think about this. Uh, does anybody question the existence of George Washington? Anybody in the room? Anybody think George Washington never existed? Illuminati. Think it was a lie? Huh? Illuminati. Illuminati. No, okay, so everyone's on board. Like, you believe that George Washington was an actual physical human being that walked on the face of the earth at some point. Okay, why? Because he left a mark. Okay, he left a mark. But also there's, there's testimonies, there's sources that, like, whether it be written down or orally of, like, this person actually existed. We have records of this. So even though we're not able to physically see George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or name whichever historical figure that you want to name, is we have physical evidence, we have historical evidence that points to saying, hey, these, this person was here at one point. And so there's a few things I read. There's like, there's four major secular scholarly works uh, that actually deal with the life of Jesus at some point in it. And here's just the four. There's Oxford Classical Dictionary, which deals with all things Greek and Roman. There's Cambridge Ancient History. There's Cambridge History of Judaism, and there's Brill's New Poly Encyclopedia of the Ancient World. So now all that probably sounded like gibberish. I get that. But it was, it was very scholarly sources. They weren't Christian by any sense. It was just a secular scholarly source that dealt with a wide range of things throughout history. And all of them at some point had a significant portion about the life of Christ. And none of them leaves any doubt that they, they believe that Jesus was a historical figure, that he physically walked the earth at some point. 
That's one way. Another way we see it is that Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies that, that he was able to prove himself by being the Messiah, prove himself and show that, that he was God. And that's another way he proved himself. In fact, here's a crazy stat that I saw. Here's the possibility of, of being able to fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And Jesus was able to do this. Listen to this quote. If you calculate the probability of any one person fulfilling sheerly by chance all of the Old Testament messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, you ready for this? It would be as astronomical as winning the lottery every day for a century. So the probability of Jesus fulfilling all of the prophecies of the Old Testament is the same chances of you or I every day for the next hundred years winning the lottery. And Jesus fulfilled every last one. And we saw that in Matthew 5. Where he says all of these things are to be fulfilled. So we see Jesus fulfilling that. So that's how he proved that he was God. We could see that. In fact, there are many historical, great historical records of Jesus, especially in comparison to other famous historical figures. So here's just one, for example. There is a total of 39 ancient sources documenting the life of Jesus. Some were Christian, but many were not. Many were not Christian. And so 39 ancient sources documenting the life of Jesus. In comparison, there are only nine ancient sources that mention Tiberius Caesar. So that's another way that we can see that evidence of God through Christ. Another way is, even to this day, the world's calendar is built around the birth of Jesus. Think of this. Before this, we would say, let's say, 500 B.C. B.C. standing before Christ. That when Christ was born, that was zero. And go from there, we see 33 A.D. or whatever the case is. So most of the world's calendars are built around the birth of of Jesus, not any other historical figure or religious figure, but on Jesus himself. Or another way we see evidence of God through this is through the impact of Jesus' life on earth is still felt to this day. So think about it. Here's just some of the great philosophers that, that people, people will hype up and talk about to this day and how they made an impact of their teachings. So there's Socrates, and he taught for 40 years. There's Plato for 50 years, or there's Aristotle for 40 Jesus taught for three years. Yet the influence of Jesus' ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these men who are among the greatest philosophers that people claim. So here's just a few ways we see through Jesus. We can see evidence of God and we can believe in Him. The next one we see is through Scripture. It's through Scripture itself. So a few ways we see this is not only the power of the Bible, but also just evidence of just all the ancient documents we have that support the Bible. So as far as the power goes, it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 7, it says all of Scripture, all the Bible, is breathed out or inspired by God. Or you see in Hebrews 4.12, the word is living and active. That's why many of us sometimes, we, we might read one passage one day, and just think nothing of it. But then the next day, it could be in the middle of a situation we're dealing with. It could be just, we need an encouragement from Scripture, or it's a verse that convicts us. And we read that, and we see it a lot differently. Why? Because it is inspired by God, and it's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. 
We see in Isaiah 55, 11, it says, The word of God shall accomplish all that God pleases and will not return void. I mean, lives are still transformed by the scriptures. The scriptures still convict us to this day. The scriptures still encourage souls to this day. The scriptures still guide many people to this day. I mean, it says in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I mean, our series that we're going through right now is called Big Questions, Biblical Answers. Because we're looking at how do we respond to these through Scripture. Because we believe Scripture is inspired by God. We believe that it is all authoritative. That is the final word on things. And we submit to that because we believe it is sufficient for all of these things. But another way we see is we just see evidence through Scripture that, again, supports Jesus as well that we just saw in truth number five. So we have, think about this, we have four full biographies of Jesus within a hundred years after his death. So we have four full biographies within a hundred years after his death. And it says the Gospels were written between, let's say, 30 and 50 years or so after Jesus' death. Well, get this. The first full biography of Alexander the Great wasn't written until 400 years after his death. Yet we have four full documents. We have four full biographies of Jesus' life after his death. Four, within, 400, or within 100 years after his death. Now let's talk about how many manuscripts we have, like how much, how much evidence do we have of this. There's approximately 5,500 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, which is more than any Greek or Latin author or book. And on top of that, there's about 300 large, like partial manuscripts. So what does it mean by large partial manuscript? It means either had like three out of four of the gospel accounts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or had all eight of Paul's letters that he wrote. So we have 300 of those large partial manuscripts. Now think about this. Anybody ever have to read Homer's Iliad at school at all? Anybody have to read that in school? No one? Just me? At least I had to in high school. So get this. The Homer's Iliad has 643 manuscripts for that. So 643 manuscripts of that in comparison to in comparison to 5,500 manuscripts for the New Testament. About nine times as much. So we see through Scripture that as though we can see God and the evidence of God that we can believe in God. Next one we see is this through the resurrection and the disciples. Through the resurrection and the disciples. So you'll see on your notes, there's a list of several people that Jesus revealed himself to after he was bodily resurrected out of the grave. So there's Mary Magdalene, there's Mary the mother of James, Salome and Joanna, Peter, the two men on the Emmaus Road, the disciples minus Thomas, all the disciples, seven disciples of the Sea of Galilee, and even 500 people at one point. So we have many, many, many witnesses of Jesus after he was bodily resurrected too. So we have several accounts in which the tomb is mentioned, several accounts in which the tomb is either mentioned and or that Jesus appeared to other people after his resurrection. So this would obviously mean that the tomb is empty if Jesus is appearing to them, because Jesus can't be appearing to them here and then still be in the tomb over here. That he is showing that the tomb is empty. In fact, this actually gives good evidence that there was leaders in Jerusalem in the decades following Jesus' death that claimed that the disciples stole the body from the tomb, so that way it gave credibility to the Christian movement. 
So listen to what it says here in Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. After they've seen that, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus has been bodily resurrected out of this, this is the report of the guards. So imagine being the guards have to go report back to their higher up saying, yeah, remember that Jesus guy we just killed? Um, he's not there anymore. And so here's what they have to say. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread through among the Jews to this day. So that is another way that we see it's giving credence to that the tomb was empty. Here's another way. Uh, Dr. Gary Habermas, he is a historian and a philosopher, and he did one of the greatest works on just scholarly works of the resurrection. So here's what he did. He gathered about 1,400 scholarly up-to-date works at the time he did this between 19, let's see, it was 1975 to 2003. So about 30 years of scholarly work. And all 1,400 of the scholarly works did agree, even at a bare minimum, that the disciples had experience, they believe, were actual appearances of the risen Christ, and all agree that there was a missing body, and if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then one could only conclude that someone had to have stolen the body. So 1,400 scholarly works across 30 years, some maybe from Christians, some maybe from not, all at least agree, okay, the tomb was empty. Whether it was someone stole it, whether it was a miracle, we don't know, but we just know the tomb was empty when we look at this. And so because of that resurrection, because the tomb was empty, then that leads to the disciples where we see this transformation of the disciples. Because think about this. Before this, when Jesus died, they were literally cowering in fear in the upper room saying, what are we going to do? Like the guy that we've been following around for three years was just killed in front of our very eyes. So they're literally cowering in the upper room, hiding out of fear of their own lives. Yet then they had Jesus appear before them, showed that he was bodily resurrected. He sent it back up and sent the Holy Spirit. And then they went out and boldly proclaimed Christ to all who would hear. That's why we see the book of Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. Because Jesus ascended, he sent down his Holy Spirit. And then we see from there the Acts of the Apostles in spreading the gospel message. I mean, you should just go through the book of Acts. There's times that the apostles get very bold. I mean, they're standing in front of crowds of people, or even the very people that murdered Jesus said, yeah, guess what? Y'all are the ones that murdered the guy. And guess what? He's resurrected. Like, I don't think they would have this confidence if Jesus was still dead in the tomb in the grave. Like, the disciples were literally thoroughly transformed, so much so that they were even willing to die for their beliefs. So does anyone seriously think that these people who were discouraged and defeated, and those who feared for their lives, would then go out steal Jesus' body, and then proceed to boldly preach the resurrection of Christ to hostile crowds. Or, or this, why, why would they face prison and torture and ultimately death while knowing that they, let's say, supposedly hid Jesus' body somewhere? I don't think they'd be nearly as bold if they stole it and hid it somewhere to say, see, look, he's resurrected. And really deep down, they know that that would be lie. Because why? Because ultimately he was, truly was bodily resurrected. He appeared before them in several other witnesses and testimonies that we see that gives credence to the tomb was empty. 
And so the resurrection and the disciples point to that is even more evidence so we can believe in God, even though we might not be able to physically see him. But then there's this last point that, that I think might seem odd for us, but I, I want to explain it some more. And truly, faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. Faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. So what I mean by that is, is we get this from Romans 10, 17, where it says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. In fact, we even see back in John 20. So when we started this, we looked at John 20 and how, uh, how Thomas says, unless I, unless I physically see the nails and see these things, then I shall never believe. Well, look at that. Jesus appears before him. And then says this, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Or it says even in 2 Corinthians 4.18, it says, We are to look to things that are unseen rather than the things that are seen. Why? Because ultimately in Ephesians 1.18, it says, We need to have the eyes of our heart opened. We need to have the eyes of our heart opened so we can see Christ and believe in Christ, believe in God, trust in God. And so we see in John 16, 7 through 11, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, they're saying, hey, look, it is good that I go away. We're saying, how can it be good that you go away when you're here with us? So that way he can send down his helper, which is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one that draws people to Christ and opens up their eyes to see their need for Christ and believe in Christ. Or even just another step further, in John 15, 18, Jesus goes, look, the world hated me. Like, the world hated me. So if they hated me, how much more are they going to hate you as my followers? Because think about this. We could have God reveal himself to us right now, directly in front of our faces, and there would still be some who would still not believe. Because think about this. There were some people back in Jesus' day who physically saw Jesus in the flesh. They saw him perform miracles. They saw him heal lame people, give sight to the blind. They saw him literally break bread and feed thousands. Yet there were still many who saw this and still did not believe. But again, there is also some, it would be the same way today, that we could have Jesus walking around performing all these miracles, and there would still be some people saying, I still don't believe it. And that's because the people did not want to believe. They could present all the evidence in front of someone. You could knock down all of these pillars. You could remove any sort of obstructions. There will still be some people saying, no, I still don't believe. Because it's not about any lack of evidence, but it's about a hardness of hearts for many people. So it's not about a lack of evidence of believing God. It's just a hardness of hearts of many people that don't want to believe in God. And so it's, it's the Holy Spirit. We working to proclaim the gospel and the Holy Spirit proclaiming through his word to soften hearts to believe in God. Because think about this, there were just as many people who never saw Jesus and yet have still believed. There's many people today, they've never seen Jesus, but they still believe in him. And again, this doesn't mean we have a blind faith. It doesn't mean saying, well, I, I guess I'll just, I sure, I'll just jump into this. It's, it's not a blind leap of faith either. It's that we can have confidence in God. We can have confidence in God and who He is through the person of Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross, and we rest in that finished work. That's not a blind faith that we have. It's very much a faith and confidence in God, and the more we see things in the world around us through sciences and other things, the more that builds our faith. So in conclusion, how does the gospel respond to this question? How does the gospel respond to, how can you believe in God if you've never seen Him? 
Again, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of God. That we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. And that we can have confidence in the existence of God through the world around us as we've seen, through the incarnation of Christ, and through His resurrection. And that God gives us the faith to be able to believe in Him, and by His grace, He holds us fast until the very end. So the way I'll describe it is, let's sound very difficult today. So Matt, like, remember a couple weeks ago when it just rained nonstop, and it just seemed like it was never going to end, and we thought it was going to be a world flood part two? Of course, that wouldn't happen, because God promised he wouldn't do that. But like, we saw that. But did anybody stop believing that the sun would come out? No, we know, like, okay, this storm is eventually going to pass, and the sun is going to pop back out at some point. Even there might be some days that are stormy and dark and cloudy, and we're, we're about, we at least, okay, the sun's going to come out at some point. In the same way, even on days where we might not feel God, or, or we might wrestle with doubts, He is still there. And I also want you to know on top of this, that it is okay to have doubts. It's okay. It's okay to have doubts and wrestle with these. In fact, all of us deal with doubts at some point. Just some have stronger doubts other days, and, and it's a lot less on other days. All of us wrestle with doubts at some point, and that's okay. And we can wrestle with that together as followers of Him. And in fact, God can handle our doubt. God welcomes and invites our doubt. God welcomes us to pour out our hearts before Him and talk to Him about this. And so the gospel helps us even with our doubts on difficult days when it's hard for us to believe in that. And so that is, that is the beauty of the gospel, that, that because of God, we can have faith in God, trust in Him, rest in His finished work on the cross. And we can believe in God, even if let's say we might not be able to physically see Him. There's many things around us. We can see the physical evidence of God around us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are just so thankful for You. We, we are so thankful in how you just reveal yourself to us through so many different avenues and so many different outlets. We are just so thankful that, that you can handle all of these doubts and handle all of these questions because you are such a big God. We thank you for the beauty of creation around us. We thank you that you can satisfy the deepest desires and longings of our soul. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross that brings us salvation. We thank you for the scriptures that reveal more of who you are and help us grow more in our relationship with you. We just thank you for all this. So would you continue to give us faith? As it says in your word, sometimes we wrestle with doubts. And we sometimes say, I believe. But would you help our unbelief? So would you help us at times that we wrestle with these things? Would you help us wrestle with this together as a family? Would you help us be willing to be vulnerable and honest, saying these are some doubts I'm, I'm wrestling with, and I just I want help with these things, knowing that you give us the grace to help that. You give us this family to wrestle with this together. And we can bring all of these things before you. Thank you so much for all that you do and all that you continue to do. So I pray, would you be with all of these students as they head back to just school and wherever else they're going tomorrow. Would you just help them be living evidence of the impact of Christ on each and every one of our lives. Continue to use each and every one of us to make Christ's name known. And it's in Jesus' holy, precious name we pray. Amen.